Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Oh, hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Star Trek The Pod Directive. My name is Paul F. Tompkins. And my name is Tawny Newsom. This is the official Star Trek podcast and we are its official hosts and we have an official episode for you right now it's all very above board yeah (laughs) yes this is very above board this is an official episode it's not one of those uh you know, non-canon episodes of this podcast. Did you know this podcast has canon episodes and <laughs> and non-canon? Yeah, even episodes? though it's not narrative, it absolutely has canonical episodes. <laughs> there are some episodes that are done by fans who are impersonating us. Uh, those are welcome, of course. You can mm-hmm. submit your your fan recorded podcasts uh, to Santa Claus the North Pole. Yep, uh, he receives all that, correspondence for things? podcasts. Did you know that? Uh, any fan mail you need to send goes through Santa Claus. It's just because they've figured out the mail distribution system. They've had a lot of time to work it out, so they're the experts. Um, Paul, haven't you ever heard of uh, verbal cosplaying? I, uh, yeah, I have, of course, but tell the <laughs> listeners about it. I think I'm making it up right now, but it's my suggestion that oh, everyone uh, vocally impersonate us and record an episode, a, a non-canonical episode of the pod directive and send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't make it slash fic. We're both married. We don't yeah. need this. Come on, guys. We don't need this, this scuttlebutt and scandal. Um, and there's also no sewing involved. So I know uh, a lot of cosplayers, they have trouble because they can't sew. With this, you exactly. just need a, a, a computer or a phone. <laughs> Someone said this Star Trek podcast isn't enough about Star Trek. Do you agree? <laughs> I disagree strongly. I okay. feel like it's uh, it's it's a lot of the subject matter. Um, I'm going to say a good 17%. <laughs> 17? Yeah, I was going to say there's at least, like at least six minutes of every hour we talk Trek. I like to think we do it every hour on the hour. For one minute. That's right. For one, we have a Star Trek minute. The show <laughs> is an hour long. <laughs> oh, and we're coming up on that minute right now. So we should oh, here get it comes. to uh, <laughs> our two guests uh, for this episode. We had a really fantastic conversation with uh, Anson Mount, uh, actor and activist. You know him as our illustrious Captain Pike from uh, Discovery. And we also have his colleague, Dr. Douglas Vakoch, who is the president of Medi. And now Medi is... Medi International is messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. They are sending out messages to our good friends, the unseen extraterrestrials, uh, and hoping that they will not phone home, but phone us. Right. Well, come on, talk to us. But yeah, we had a really fun chat with them about uh, 
all things, you know, messaging other life. Um, Anson has had a long interest in, you know, life in other worlds. And so uh, Dr. Doug approached him to join their board. So Anson's a board member. Dr. Doug is the is the prez. And uh, yeah, they both have fascinating outlooks on what it means to reach other life. And as much as you can enjoy uh, Trek and and the, all the ideas that are presented in it, when you start talking about it in real life, it really is so much fun to talk about. It's so much fun to think about the idea that there truly are intelligences out there that we have yet to meet. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of think I'm not, uh, you know, I feel like they could have been here. Um, we get into that, but who knows? I, I I guess because I can't, even though I have not had a personal experience, um, I I feel like it's very hard to discount so many people who who have who, who say they yeah. have. But I don't know. It, but it is the idea that that one day someone would respond to our messages is it's just extremely exciting. You know, what I always think about is like, I also don't have a strong opinion one way or the other of whether they've been here, whether they're out there. I'm like, sure, probably. But (laughs) in terms of Trek, I think less about like the first contact, first contact, like the movie and, you know, how we know it is in in canon with the Vulcans. And I I love to think about that episode of Enterprise, Carbon Creek, where T'Pol tells the story to Archer and to um, Trip where they basically they're like, tell us a story because they tell her some, you know, American joke Mm -hmm. or something. And then they're like, tell us a story. And she goes, "Okay, I have a story for you. And she tells this tale of these original Vulcans who accidentally landed on Earth. But this wasn't the first context story we all know. And so what they did was just blend into society, get jobs, start a relationship. One of them went to the library a lot. So I think (laughs) I love that because I think that's far more likely as to what happened Mm -hmm. or, or could happen is like, some aliens ended up here. They were like, oh, shit, this isn't our planet. Well, what do you do? Uh, put on a hat and just walk walk in the same direction these people are. And it probably just, <laughs> you know, lived out their days. And it's a fun uh, switcheroo on all the times we've seen Federation go to a planet undercover mm-hmm. uh, and and something goes wrong and they have to blend in for longer than they expected to. Um, and also fun bootstrap theory stuff with uh, inventing Velcro. Yes. <laughs> inventing Velcro and just being obsessed with I Love Lucy. That wasn't what I'm obsessed with, with Lucy episodes. That's right. That's right. This was really a lot of fun. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. And um, I guess take it away, us in the past. And we'll get to that right after this quick break. Agreed. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great. So I'd love to welcome you both to the show. 
Paul, would you also like to welcome them both? I the also would like to join you in welcoming them to the show. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Um, Thanks very much. Uh, we There's so much stuff. I, I'm very excited to have this conversation because I, the idea of of making contact with extraterrestrial life has fascinated me since I was a kid. And I just want to know how close we are. <laughs> how close are we getting? You know, what, uh, what, what, how long has this been something that has interested you uh, individually? And uh, where, where are we now? We could succeed tonight. We could, we could make first contact as early as tonight. Uh, and that's because we have astronomers using huge radio telescopes to be listening for signals from space. And so the, the search is on 24-7, and at any time that signal could come in that lets us know we have finally, finally we know we are not alone in the universe. Wow. That is very exciting and terrifying. Does that scare <laughs> either of you, or are you just all excitement? I'm all excitement. I'm all in for this. Uh, but I think that's a really natural reaction because we've we've got a lot of hype about what aliens might be like. And so there's the hope that this is going to revolutionize everything or, uh-oh, this is going to lead to our annihilation. So I think it's it's both of those extremes. And I think reality is probably somewhere in between. Still mm -hmm. exciting. Who was it that said, Doug? Somebody said there are only two possibilities. Either we're alone in the universe or we're not. And either way, it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Was that, that may have been Carl Sagan or it might have been. Uh, who, who, who knows? So many people have said this. But yeah, I, and I think this search really, it has to pull for our imagination because there's so many unknowns about it. And so, you know, I think at times we, uh, when we look into space, our, our greatest dreams and our worst fears are out there. Uh, and that actually makes the work we do both really exciting um, and and easy because we can imagine the great stuff and also really pretty tricky because, you know, some people have said, don't let the aliens know we're here or they may come to Earth and annihilate us. And so that's uh, uh, an illusion that we need to dispel. Mm -hmm. I mean, th there's so much speculative fiction about what happens uh, and most of it seems to be <laughs> the aliens do not like us. Um, <laughs> it's, it it's makes for a much better plot in of course. a Hollywood blockbuster, doesn't it? The aliens come yeah. in peace, and it's usually <laughs> kind of boring. Um, but, but, but the problem is, um, you know, if there are aliens out there and they're listening, our greeting, hello, is not going to be the first they know about us because mm -hmm. good old mm -hmm. planet Earth has been giving off evidence that there is life on Earth, microbial life, through changes to our atmosphere for two billion years. So if there are any paranoid aliens out there who want to, you know, take out any of the competition early on, they've had a long time to come and we have not seen them. So I'm, I'm not worried about that. Uh, I think the greater challenge, though, is how do it, maybe they are out there. Maybe, you know, maybe there is something like a federation of planets and we haven't yet gotten entry into the Federation? What do we need to do uh, to get them uh, to reach out, to respond to us? And so at METI, we send messages. We send a direct, think of it as an application to the Federation. We want to join. Uh, and mm -hmm. that is something that they don't know at this point. They may know we're here listening to 
Star Trek that's been going out since the 1960s. I mean, there's our message off into space saying we've been thinking about things, these things, but not a direct, we want to join. And that's what we're mm. doing. Right. Do you feel the need now when I've wanted to join something that seems exclusive and exotic, I try and make myself appear as interesting <laughs> and smart as possible? Do you Absolutely. feel a responsibility to dress up Earth a little bit? <laughs> you know, I, I think that's our natural tendency. You look at the messages that have gone out, uh, say the Voyager spacecraft, which of course yeah. got a, its own its own movie when V'ger came back. But that was an attempt to describe humanity at its best. So there was intentionally, you know, sure there was. Yep, you have a recording of the the uh, golden one. record for you, and it's great. So we've got whale songs and dolphins, and you know that's that's what brought V'ger back to Earth, trying to make contact with the really intelligent species here on our home planet. <laughs> um, but that that message, you know, over a hundred pictures of life on Earth, and all of them were very positive. So humankind at its best. No nuclear mushroom clouds, no disease, no poverty. So I think there is this uh, attempt to put on our best front, put our best foot forward. I think, though, that's really missing the point. Because the reality is, if there is another civilization out there that's very advanced, they've been doing this for a long time, compared to them, we're not going to be technologically superior. We're not going to be so wise. Right. And so let's play up what we have going for us, which is just uh, I, I would put my money on Earth being of any populated planet in the entire galaxy, the world with the most exquisite balance of joy and sorrow. I mean, it's it's our uncertainties. It's the fact that we do suffer. It's the fact that, you know, we're all going to die eventually, and we know that, and it bothers us. That may <laughs> be a completely alien concept to an extraterrestrial that lives forever that is at peace, that has something like a federation of planets where you've, you know, you've got a lot more civility and a lot more stability than we have right now. So I think playing up the reality of our situation is actually the most interesting message we could send. Instead of trying to say, you know, here we are at our best. And, you know, if they're listening to our TV broadcast, they're seeing that we're also not being very open. We're trying to conceal a lot about ourselves. Let's be open and have faith that being who we are is what it really takes to get entry into the club. I think we also make two big mistakes over and over in science fiction when it comes to first contact situations. Number one, we assume that they're either going to want to kill us all and take our resources, or they're going to be perfect. And it's the classic deification demonization problem. The truth is much more likely to be a mixture of that of not necessarily extremes, but a mixture of good and bad, just like we are, of what is likely a part of any advanced species will be communal. It will be herd-like. It will be a social animal in and of itself, therefore something that learned how to lie a long time ago. The other mistake that we tend to make in, uh, in science fiction is assuming that the aliens are going to be a cohesive unit <laughs> mm -hmm. um, rather than recognize that they will probably have competing interests on their own planet. You know, there will be a version of North Korea. Mm. There will be a version of the United States. Not as exactly exacting as that, but 
I think that it, it's important to remember in these first contact situations that we dream up, it's not necessarily going to be a, a concerted, unified message. And that actually makes not only more realistic, but a more interesting plot. So it's not, oh, a message is coming in from Tossetti, but which faction? Can mm -hmm. we really believe them? You know, how well do they represent their world? Yeah, the, the idea that we would finally meet an alien civilization, they'd just be like a little bit ahead of us in technologically <laughs> you know it's 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 conceivable that they're just a little bit more advanced but uh you know because what we usually imagine is if they've been around for thousands or millions of years much more advanced and so that's why we've always said oh let them do the heavy lifting send us the messages we'll just wait that's a standard practice of seti which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence but maybe, in fact, a stable civilization is one that doesn't continually grow exponentially, but learns to live within its means. So maybe they are a little bit more advanced, just a little bit more advanced, in which case some of those civilizations may not even know we're out here. I mean, the big ones, the ones that could have, have warp drive and can come and annihilate us, mm -hmm. they already know we're here. But the ones that are yeah. just a little bit more advanced than us, maybe not. Will it be mutually disappointing if that's the way it turns out? <laughs> well, I think what we're mutually disappointing in the sense of uh, you mean if we if we're not able to make contact or uh, say well no if if like we both accept if we both expected uh, sort of close encounters gray aliens uh, <laughs> you know and then it's just like oh you look like us I, I no I think no no it's gonna it's gonna be wilder <laughs> than than uh, anyone in your prosthetics department can do it, it the, the, the weirder the aliens we can come up with you know casting is is still kind of dominated by some bipeds two arms two legs mm -hmm. and at the top i think the aliens are going to be a lot weirder looking and <laughs> and a lot and a lot weirder thinking and a lot weirder mm -hmm. communicating so anson um you were just appointed to medi's board did your interest in these things precede or rather predate your involvement in trek or did trek kind of heighten your interest in looking for looking for alien life yeah you know, I've been a sci-fi fan for a long time, and also, um, I would say, more curious than most in terms of uh, all things SETI, all things First Contact. I also, I host, uh, I produce and host a podcast called The Well with my friend Brandon Edgens that's about people who have forced themselves to think outside the box in order to overcome hurdles. And Doug was uh, one of our favorite, he's still one of our favorite guests so far. And we had a great time talking to him. We, we put out a couple of great episodes with him. And about a year later, that's when Doug asked me to, to join the board. And my first response was, well, you know, when I'm, I'm an actor, right? <laughs> 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 um, but to Doug's credit, you know, he realizes that nobody's ever tried to do this before and that that a, a diverse team of minds at the table is the best thing we've got going for us. So I happily jumped on board as the sole actor in a group of scientists <laughs> uh, and a choreographer. And um, I've become in charge of outreach and sort of trying to further establish Medi's footprint and the uh, popular landscape, as it were. But also, I, I'm getting really, I'm, I'm having a great time getting involved in some of these discussions. Um, a, a member of our advisory board, um, John Trefagan, who's a professor of philosophy and religion at UT Austin, 
he and Kelly Smith, another religion and philosophy professor at Clemson, were putting together a symposium about the effects, the, the possible effects on Earth religion in the age of space exploration and vice versa. And uh, we're sort of right now headhunting all the people that we want to be involved in this conversation. And it's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing that I never, I never thought that I would be a part of, um, but I'm enjoying it immensely. Yeah, that makes me wonder, like, who are the best types of, is there a certain profession that you lean towards? I would just think, fill it full of scientists, because they're going to be smarter than me and most of us. <laughs> but I bet you want some artists, right? Exactly. Yeah, we're, 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 right now we're in the hunt for, um, we've gone to a couple of science fiction authors. We're, we're trying, we definitely want a, a science fiction author. Um, I've asked for an evolutionary anthropologist and a sociologist. And yeah, we're going for... We're again. We're going for diversity of thought and viewpoint on this, on this one. Uh, obviously, we're we're covering several points of view in religion, from Christianity to Buddhism to Islam, and it's. It, but nobody's again. Nobody's tried to do this either. So we're trying to sure. feel it out as uh, as we go. It really was that that broader perspective that I noticed in Anson. So as as he said, it, we. We need people who can communicate, who can help translate what we're doing into something that, you know, we can use to engage the public because we need everyone involved in this whole question of what do we say uh, for planet Earth? And so over the course of, uh, it was a year and a half that we did a, a couple of interviews for the podcast. And as the president of METI, I'm always on the lookout for, you know, who can help us lead this organization. And so with Anson, it was Yes, of course. Clearly, he's a, he's a great communicator. This was, uh, I think, even before your uh, first involvement as Captain Pike on its discovery. At least it was before it was announced publicly. But yeah, I, I saw in him someone who recognizes the importance of these broad perspectives and is willing to jump in and, and lead us into these new areas like religion and theology and philosophy. It's sort of like building the 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 space arc, you know. If you want, if you want to have a a sort of uh, a, a broad spectrum of people of different, like everything that makes up what hum humanity is, you know, that you want to have all those different uh, those different mindsets and emotional sets uh, represented. Absolutely. And so, if you look at our advisory council, we have over ninety people from over twenty countries, and just spanning the the disciplines that Anson was mentioning biology, uh, philosophy, theology, dance, music. I mean, just all of us. I was just going to say, you did sort of touch on this earlier, Doug, but um, as we start thinking about making the, these first contacts, as the, as the human race, what do we do to prepare for that? Like, should we already have our version of a prime directive? Should we already establish these rules? And who is in charge of that? Like, yeah. I need to know... Is it governments? Because scary. Is it private companies? Because scary. Like who, <laughs> in an ideal world, I guess I want to know who actually is in charge of it. And in an ideal world, who should be in charge of it? For me, in, in the uh, ideal world, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, would say, go to the Security Council or the General Assembly and say, I want this to be a top priority. So let's really get this global discussion going. The reality is... The UN's got a lot of other issues on its plate right now, and so they haven't made this the top. 
Uh, and so there aren't any um, governmental organizations, any international organizations that have any sort of legal or policy authority. So it's really fallen to the organizations that are committed to doing the search itself. And I think the, the key is to make that as broad as we can to have voices that are supportive and critical. So uh, the two people that um, Anson mentioned, John Traphagen and Kelly Smith, have also been very critical of the idea of, well, let's be a little bit cautious in our transmissions. So we want to bring those voices in too. So it's not just everyone who's gung-ho behind it. But, you know, it, it, I, I think the only way we can move ahead with this is um, to make better progress to make this more inclusive process every time we go around. I think the the tendency and the thing that's really stopped us is waiting for the perfect message that has the endorsement of 7 billion people. It's not going to happen. Uh, mm. I mean, imagine what, what would we send that really everyone on earth could agree to? One plus one equals two. Maybe that's about it. But uh, I think instead- Maybe if, like Great British Bake Off. <laughs> if we if we do the great interstellar bake off and you know see what the best messages are that people what menu and who knows maybe the aliens don't have this fixation on vision that we do but you know it, it's a gr it's a good tart that they're looking for you know something that's going to be a tasty dessert so yeah sure. maybe, yeah how much do we know and how much do we suspect of what uh, different governments of the world uh, have in terms of protocols for a first contact. I mean, does anybody ever talk about this? It seems like it's not a thing that you ever hear a government say like, oh yeah, we do have kind of a, you know, don't worry <laughs> if, if this ever happens, we have an idea <laughs> we have of what we're going to do. I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard that. There is a United Nations office for outer space affairs, but as we know, the UN is only as powerful as the respect it's given. Mm -hmm. You bring up, I think, a very important point which is that we're talking about a situation that I think is inevitable, whether it's in our lifetimes or not. If the human race survives, it's inevitable. And I come down on the side of believing that ontologically we are not prepared for that situation. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, during the, the, Prior to the 2020 election, a lot of people in public policy got together and they war-gamed war out several possible end scenarios. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting idea. And I'm starting to think about if there's a way that Medi could help to generate a, a series of war games with uh, different first contact situations. That's really cool. I, I think that's a fantastic idea. Because, uh, um, and it's kind of following up what you were talking about, Paul, of the, what are the possibilities? What do we know of? We've got to lay out everything that we can imagine, um, whether it seems likely or unlikely, and then see what follows from that. Because I would imagine that certainly in this, in this, in our country, that, uh, they have some sort of, you know, general idea of what they would do. And it's, I mean, honestly, it's not, I, I, it does, that doesn't fill me with optimism necessarily. I don't know that we we would have a uh, you know a, a great reaction to this. Um, I I imagine there's people already thinking how do we monetize first contact, but uh, you know um, so this is not so the the idea of uh, 
uh, wargaming it for for lack of a better term for for Medi. Is that's that's not something you've done yet, or something that you're working on now? That's just a, an idea that I had recently that right. that I st- actually still need to talk to Doug about. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I think the first order of business would be to bring over someone in public policy who participated in the, those war games to to figure out how these the, that was set up and um you know and it's i think there's a much broader set of parameters with this obviously we're not dealing with an event that we know is going to happen on a certain date uh you don't just have necessarily two sides vying for one specific win Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out what the parameters would be in a in a variety of different situations. Now, Anson, you work with um, a lot of uh, veterans organizations. Has that affected the way you think about you've you've played military characters uh, on Hell on Wheels and of course Star Trek? Has that affected the way you think about those characters and the the in real life efforts to uh, militarize space, like the the new Space Force branch? Yeah, I. I it's given me a, a tremendous amount of respect for what those men and women do and for what my father and my stepfather went through in World War II. Yeah, I, I have played a number of of members of the military and special forces and Civil War veterans and people dealing with PTSD and a lot of other things. So that, ex- that experience really is invaluable, both for my own sake as an artist, but also just as a way to give back. I think every American should give back to veterans. I think that we have, um, unfortunately, like just about everything else in our lives, respect for the military has become politicized. Mm -hmm. As politicized as I hate to say it, and it's sad to have to say it, but the flag. I believe that the flag has been completely co-opted, if not entirely ceded, to the right. And it's, uh, it wasn't the way when I was a kid. I don't know really, really what to, to make of that. Uh, I, I don't think I'm such a strange mix of a person having grown up in rural Tennessee and being a, you know, artist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does give me a, a much, I think, a pretty broad perspective and an ability to see both sides of, of the current political divide. But I think that we can all agree on one thing, and that that is that we have got to get our shit together when it comes to how we treat veterans. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that is something that everybody can pitch in on, whether it's by supporting your your favorite veterans organization or figuring out what your your veterans homes home situation or homelessness situation is in your local community and state, because it's it's a big problem. Um, we have really fallen down on our responsibility to those who have fought and defended us. Yeah, I, I believe I believe in it greatly. I would just love to know um, both of your first contacts with Trek. Uh, when was the first time you encountered Star Trek? Doug, we'll start with you. I grew up in the 1960s, and so uh, you know I was following the race to the moon from my earliest memories. And at the same time, there were two other things happening. So uh, we were um, using spacecraft to leave our planet for the first time and head to the moon. Um, 
there was also the first search for intelligence beyond Earth that started in 1960 using radio telescopes to listen for signals coming in from other worlds. And then there's Star Trek that really combines the two and says, let's imagine we're not just going to go to the nearest heavenly body from Earth, but we're going to go across the galaxy and we're going to go fast mm -hmm. enough to potentially even meet alien life. So for me, it, it's there's a natural merger between them because Star Trek imagines what uh, we may be doing a couple of hundred years from now. And, you know, I, I wish I, I wish we had the warp drive so we could really have face to face contact with the aliens uh, because we're not going to get there by spacecraft anytime in my lifetime or in the next generation. But the great news is we have the tools to make contact with the aliens uh, at the speed of light by sending radio messages, laser pulses. So to me, uh, you know, Star Trek was sort of a vision of what could be possible and wouldn't it be cool if the aliens looked like this? And then as I got older, I realized, wait a second, science is even cooler than this. And ultimately they <laughs> merge together and the science fiction helps us imagine new possibilities. Uh, and then the science lets us test what's really the case out there in the universe. Anson, what was your first contact with Trek? So, yeah, I discovered Trek through the, the original series uh, when I was about seven or eight. It started in syndication on our local UHF channel. You remember the UHF channel? <laughs> <laughs> Some people called it local access. And... Uh, my mother made me start watching it with her, and at first I didn't get it at all. She said, it's about people that fly around a spaceship, and they go around all around the galaxy finding different alien species. And I'm like, that was, I thought, that's a terrible idea for a show. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I got into it. So I can, I can honestly say I've probably seen every episode of the original like three times. Wow. And then when I got into... Junior high, high school was when The Next Generation started. And so I watched that religiously for the like about the two first two or three seasons. And then I got into college and uh, TV went away for about seven years mm -hmm. uh, or more, actually, because then I couldn't afford a TV after college. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I fell really behind on all the later series. And then it was, you know, it... it Coming full circle and finding myself playing a starship captain is just, it's so bizarre. It's, <laughs> it is the most surreal thing that is, that has happened to me in this career. And that's saying something. And, and I mean, not just any starship captain, but the, the very first Star Trek captain there ever was, uh, going back to mm -hmm. the, the original unaired, uh, pilot. Um, I, I mean, were you, that, that certainly must've uh rung a bell for you when you <laughs> when you saw that role yeah well when they when they called me about about it they didn't tell me what the role was mm -hmm. they asked me to if i would put myself on tape and i was like yeah sure and the side they wrote these dummy sides that came and the name was captain parker and i thought that was a terribly unimaginative <laughs> name for a captain and uh i did it and they called me the back the next day and said okay We'd love you to to do it, and it's actually Captain Pike, and I just about fell over backwards. <laughs> 
do you feel that it would have it would have changed the way you read the sides, the initial sides, if you knew it was that oh, character? Oh, not only that, but <laughs> I found out much later, actually just a, a few months ago, Alex and Akiva told me that they'd actually been talking about this idea of doing a Pike series well before they ever cast me. And uh, I said, thank you for not telling me that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been so much pressure. <laughs> so we've been talking about the first contacts that we might have with Earth. Feel free to tell me that this is total bullshit. But at the time of recording, in recent news, we have this Israeli scientist claiming that there has been a first contact already by what he is calling the Galactic Federation. Uh, he's claiming that this has happened, that we have been in contact, but that the Galactic Federation is just like chilling out a little bit and waiting till humans are um, like more like our vibe is better, basically, before <laughs> they want to come and talk to us, which I could see happening because of all the prime directive talk we've been having. It makes total sense that you know, an alien species would have their own version of a prime directive. Like, we don't want to mess with y'all until you're a little more ready for us. But what do we what do we think about this claim? Does it hold water for the two of you? It holds no water for me. Um, and, you know, I, I get contacted all the time by people who say, oh, I have made contact with a, another being. Um, they've come, I've, I've seen them. And, uh, you know, who am I to doubt someone else's experience? But what I need to do as a scientist is say, okay, great. Um, send me something that I can evaluate, something that I can look at. And so when I hear a claim by someone who says, um, okay, I know about this galactic federation, my response is great. Show me something that I can evaluate. And unfortunately, no one ever shows me anything. Mm. So if you think about it, you know, there are a lot of ways we can come to test this claim that there might be alien life. And there's a real pull to look toward authorities, a prominent general or some government official. And if that's what you want to evaluate, if that's what you want to use, then you might look to someone like this um, uh, Israeli person and say, uh, well, this person had a responsible position. But, but again, what's the evidence? That's not the scientific approach where what someone claims isn't the ultimate. What really matters is, do you have some facts to back it up? So, you know, as we search for signals from aliens, we come across things that look good the first time we see them. But the problem is, is that just a glitch that we found or a satellite flying over? In order to really make the claim there's life out there, we need something that can be independently verified. And that's the problem with all of these anecdotal claims or, or claims from people um, with authority, but with no evidence behind them. So it, it I, I wish it were true, um, but I need to see something to make me believe it, and I haven't seen it. If you feel that they, there has not been a uh, an actual first contact of a close encounter where um, you know a human being is communicating directly with uh, someone from another planet, in your minds, do you feel that there has been? Uh, actual observation by another civilization of our planet? You know, we, we don't know, but it's certainly conceivable because, you know, when we started out with this scientific attempt to contact other civilizations back in 1960, astronomers uh, went to Green Bank, West Virginia, 
used a, a radio telescope to listen for signals from two nearby sun-like stars. Didn't find anything, but they started what's now called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So we've been looking for that evidence out there. And the argument has always been that, look, we've just had radio for less than 100 years. So we're new to this game. Let's let's do the thing that could succeed immediately for us, but that's going to take a lot more patience than we have as a civilization, which is transmitting thousands of years, millions of years, waiting for someone to pick it up. And so that really made sense, this first 60 years of trying to make contact. Let's do, let's take our baby steps. We're, we're adolescents. But what I would say is now that we are getting ready to grow up, let's look at what we might do to also reach out to other worlds. So, Paul, the idea that there could be someone out there that's watching us, we don't know. We don't have direct evidence. But there's this curious question that the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi uh, asked in 1950. He said, okay, we've got this galaxy with over 100 billion stars, and there are billions of other galaxies out there. And so if there's intelligent life somewhere, why haven't they come here? It's called the Fermi paradox. If they're there, why haven't we made contact? Why haven't they come to Earth? Um, why don't we know that they're there? And one possibility comes straight from Star Trek, which is the, the prime directive. And that maybe there are civilizations out there that they're watching. But as we know, at least in the Star Trek uh, universe, the Federation doesn't uh, condone letting another civilization know until they have warp drive. But, you know, there are a lot of captains who violated that rule, and they've made a judgment <laughs> call about what is it, what does it take before <laughs> we're willing true. to let them know? And mm -hmm. so one possibility is that there are civilizations out there, but they're, they're waiting to show that we've grown up. And so maybe, maybe for some of those captains out there, what it really takes is to say, okay, we understand that scientifically it's very likely that you're out there and we are now not just you know we're not just here talking with one another on our radio and tv we're talking to you and we really do want to join this federation of planets uh, what's your application process um here's here's why we think we should join let's start a dialogue if you think about technology like the gravity lens which is this idea of using the 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 bend of gravity around the sun is a kind of lens. It's not crazy. It, it's not achievable in our lifetimes, but it's not, it's not crazy out there stuff. We know, we know generally how it would work. And with something like that in place, you know, you can, you'd actually be able to see the surfaces of distance, distant planets. So yeah, if they're that much more advanced, they know we're here. I don't think it's arguable <laughs> if they're interested. And I, sure. and I think that curiosity is a universal thing. So I do think that they're interested. Sure. You know, when I first heard about this claim, this Galactic Federation claim, we have all these first contact stories throughout Trek. And the one that I thought of was the TNG episode, First Contact, <laughs> where it is not actually the Federation that's choosing not to uh, make themselves known to the people, but the government, the governing body of that planet. I forgot the name of the planet, but basically 
Riker's been undercover with these new folks to see if they're worthy of joining the Federation. He gets injured, and because he doesn't have mittens for hands, basically, they're like, yo, you're not one of us. Um, <laughs> so when Picard approaches the, you know, the heads of state and whatnot and says, okay, we're ready to, you know, tell your people about us, they're the ones that say, you know, judging by the the stuff we've been kind of dealing with, I don't think we're ready to meet you guys. So for a litany of reasons, mainly probably because as, you know, TV and movie watchers, we've been fed this idea of, oh, it's it's our world governments that are keeping the aliens from us. It's a it's a really enticing and exotic idea that that the aliens have come, that they are here, but we're just us lay people have been prevented from knowing about it. I, I feel like it's a little sexier of a it's sexier to have a conspiracy like that rather than just, yeah, they're out there. They know we're here and they have a code of conduct that says they don't want to interfere with us. I think you're right. It, it is sexier to think of conspiracies. The The challenge with a conspiracy is how do you ever evaluate them? Because if you say, well, okay, yeah, but show me the evidence. Well, I can't show you the evidence because there's a, you know, a government constraint against this. So, you know, it's a, it's a nice story. And, you know, parts of it really reflect the reality of living in a world where there's a lot of governmental influence and a lot of power and, you know, people feel very paranoid and out of control in their lives. But again, it's it, what do you do with that in terms of trying to make contact? There's nothing you can do because then you're at the mercy. What we're always trying to do at Medi is say, okay, let's think of, let's think outside the box. Let's think of some other alternatives to making contact. And this is something we've been doing in trying to uh, make contact with aliens for decades. You know, in the earliest days of SETI, mm. focus was only radio. That's all we could conceive. Except there was a guy, um, Charles Towns, who got the Nobel Prize for inventing the laser, who back in the 60s said, well, how about if the aliens are sending laser pulses? And all of his colleagues said, that's ridiculous, Charlie. No one could do that. And then the decades went along, and by the 90s, we're saying, wait a second, we can do this. Maybe the aliens could. It's like, that's what I see Medi as. It's this next evolution of saying, mm. maybe we can, as a civilization, take on a project that... In the best case scenario, it takes four years for a message to reach the nearest star and get a reply back in four years. Maybe we can take on a project that requires us to have more confidence that we're going to be around than we've had in the past. But to do that, as compared to the conspiracy theory, you've got to have some way of doing some action in the real world that you can test. So that's what we're doing being concrete about, here's what we think might be out there. Maybe there's someone who's already monitoring and what they need in order to overcome their version of the prime directive is someone who says, we want to make contact. And also, if there was a conspiracy, do you honestly think that Trump wouldn't have blabbed about it by now? <laughs> I mean, I've the, thought about it's that the ultimate so smoke many times. I've thought about that so many times. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the ninja smoke screen, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he would not have been able to keep that a secret. <laughs> That's a bummer. I, w I wish there was one, and I wish he'd let it slip. He'd be like, you're an idiot, but thank you for that tidbit. Uh, Anson, could we talk a little bit about um, Strange New Worlds? Sure. What do you want to know? Uh, I, I can't tell you everything. anything. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you anything. Well, not a single thing. Uh, other than my emotions about it. <laughs> I can tell you I'm excited. Emotions are cool. Yeah. I have emotions about it. I'm excited about it. I I love the look of it. I just want to start there. Like 
you know, seeing you, seeing Rebecca Romaine, who I know a little bit in this kind of, yeah, it, it's the it's the closest thing we've seen to the original series, just in the costume design and the hair and makeup design. It feels very retro, yet at the same time, very futuristic. And I love that because I think that's what makes Trek the most timeless is when those things come together. So I'm just wondering if for you, if it's felt that if it's felt different than working on Discovery. Well, we haven't really started working on it yet. At least I haven't. So I don't know. I think in, in ways it'll it'll feel similar and ways it'll feel very different, uh, chiefly because it'll be a different cast. And I'll miss a lot of those people over there on Discovery, as well as the the crew and the amazing fight team and uh, the incredible uh, camera ops. I'm hoping we're going to steal a few of those people <laughs> over to our side because we will be shooting at the same time. They're in the middle of fourth right now. And uh, we're getting a little bit of new technology, filmmaking technology, to help us deal with the pandemic um, and help us stay out of, of locations. Yeah, to, to follow up, Anson, to follow up Paul's earlier comment about this is, you, you are reprising the captain who was at the pilot, the unaired pilot that launched the entire series. What is it like as an actor to now be giving viewers for the first time an understanding of this iconic captain that, that started the whole thing? Well, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of responsibility not just because I know how much Star Trek means to the fans, but because if you think about it, Pike was Roddenberry's original conception of what a Starfleet captain should be. So he has to be, in some ways, an embodiment of Starfleet code. Uh, he has to be the embodiment of the idealism that lived inside of, of Gene Roddenberry. Um, and so, yeah, I, I try to keep my ears open to that and my mind open to that and remember that he probably had good parents. He definitely had good mentors and, uh, he tries to be one himself. Um, but I'm also excited about the fact that, uh, we're going to be doing more of an old school Trek. You know, if you notice a lot of the, the iterations in this current generation of Trek, the storylines tend to be serialized, which comes with a lot of benefits, but, you know, I, I, I grew up on an episodic track where there was sort of the big idea of the week or the planet of the week. And we're going to be getting back to, to more of that. So it's not just going to be in the look, but it's also going to be in the overall structure and feel of the show. That's why it's called Strange New Worlds. What an amazing opportunity to flesh out a character that is so huge in the lore of the show, but has only been seen a couple times in the history of the series before Discovery. I'm very much looking forward to this show. Yeah, me too. No kidding. <laughs> and yeah, I, and I, would, I would say from a purely selfish reasons, you know, as this show goes forward, it makes it easier for us to do the work at Medi that's at our core mission, which is to reach out, to boldly go, and to create a vision of what we want to be 200 years from now. So this is, this is a case... You know, we, we often talk about science informing science fiction, but science fiction can also pull science forward. I love that. Well, I'm so looking forward to Strange New Worlds. I'm so looking forward to all of Medi's pursuits. I hope that you reach out. I hope you get a response. I hope you get a little pen pal. <laughs> and I'm guessing like um, Star Trek actors who are on current Star Trek um, series are not going to be the first people that you notify about this, but I would just like to pitch <laughs> that maybe you tell us first. 
just you know as like a reward the, the entire star trek community is within our first uh, group that will get the announcement as we go does that forward ex- does that extend to podcasts absolutely yeah. okay absolutely. Good we have to That's we have to, to do know. we have to do a, a, an interview ahead of time before the release right yeah <laughs> That's right. doug why don't you why don't you tell them a, a little bit about what Medi has coming up oh please yes one of the great challenges we have at METI is uh, sending out the messages because the telescopes, the transmitters we use are under such high demand uh, by other scientists, for example, uh, using transmitters to look at the trajectories of asteroids. In fact, one of the, one of the big um, disasters for the astronomical community is the collapse of uh, the world's largest uh, radio transmitter for scientific research at Arecibo, Puerto Rico. So that's a telescope where the most famous message to extraterrestrials was sent out many decades ago. So as we look forward as an organization, um, we'll be building our own transmitter, um, relying on that same idea that Charles Town suggested in the 1960s of using lasers. So it travels at the speed of light, the beauty of lasers is that we can pack a lot more information in uh, um, in every second of transmission. And then along the way, we'll still be uh, using radio transmissions. And we don't have anything to announce right now, but we will let people know as our next transmission is coming up. Wow, that's fantastic. I, it never occurred to me that <laughs> these gigantic uh telescopes were there was a line <laughs> to use there's them. a line there's a huge and and right and and, and uh, when other scientists use them they can be pretty well guaranteed of a payoff and there's a lot of unknown for us because we don't know if an alien's going to pick up that message or not and so right. that's why it's important you know the kind of support that we get from people globally is really what lets us operate which is people who have a vision of saying I- i'm okay we need to invest in something that would be wonderful if, pay, if it pays off, even though there's a certain amount of unknown in it. Mm-hmm. Super cool. And the lasers sound very cool too, just because they look neat. They, I'm sure they're more <laughs> efficient for what you need them to do, but I bet they just look really cool. They do, sure. These these little zaps of light going on. It's like a laser show from the 60s, but instead <laughs> of a, a concert for us uh, you know, with Pink Floyd, this is actually communicating with the aliens. <laughs> Hey, don't sell yourself short. You could put a little Pink Floyd under that and like, you we know, can sell do it that. We can combine. Yeah, yeah. We Absolutely. can do those kind of partnerships. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be Coming to CBS All Access. <laughs> cool. Well, you two have been an absolute delight. I learned things. I laughed. We talked about Trek. This was a perfect hour of uh, for me for spending my day. Um, I want to thank you both for doing that with us. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. much to think about uh, that's right i loved when i asked um dr doug about the the israeli scientist claim that there was first contact and <laughs> he just shot it down immediately he was like that holds no water i was like Ooh, that's a way to answer a question sir <laughs> and as a, as a scientist to hear someone say that oh that's Ooh, got a sting that's got a sting sorry scientist i mentioned <laughs> hope you're not listening to this <laughs> <laughs> what a what if they are? And it's like, again? I gotta live through this? They're just so bummed that Dr. Doug Now these two? Believe in them. Uh, y'all, well, thanks for listening with us. I learned a lot. I learned to be hopeful uh, that aliens show up and that they're chill and cool. That's, that absolutely is the big hope. 
Yeah. Is that they're not uh, seek and destroy aliens. Please. If you're, if you're, if you're an alien listening to this and you're an SAD alien, seek and destroy, please leave us alone. Please, please seek and destroy aliens. Please just, please necromancer aliens. Please just go somewhere else. <laughs> Wait, are there necromancer aliens? I don't know. I just started watching um, Raised by Wolves. Oh, sure. Absolutely. This is a tangent. But if anyone's watching Raised by Wolves, uh, it's terrifying. But, you know, I like space shit. I like, I like alien <laughs> stuff. Anyway, we should go. Yeah, we should go. I'm building a robot that can scream people to death. <laughs> Spoilers, Paul. Okay, that's it. This has been another episode of Star Trek, the pod directive. We're beaming out. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> L-L-A-P.